Aren't you glad this morning that we can sing at Christmas time of the resurrection of the Lord? Anybody else that you talk about that lived 2,000 years ago, it's a history lesson. But with the Lord, it's a relationship because He's alive. And we thank Him for that. I'd like you to take your, this morning your Bible and look at Isaiah chapter 40. If you would, please, Isaiah chapter 40. And um, as well, if you would, take your bulletin and look there. A number of different things to look at and prepare for in the next few weeks and a few announcements to make as well. And uh, you see there in the inside of your bulletin, several things coming up even this week. Uh, we have the homeschool uh, handbell choir that some elementary students directed there by Lori Ferguson, a number of our Students in our church, our homeschool students, have been a part of that and even are a part of that uh, now. And so uh, there's a concert tomorrow, particularly for uh, senior saints and uh, those that can attend tomorrow. That's tomorrow afternoon at 4.30 and a school concert coming up. And then the week of Christmas, the seven days or so before Christmas, there's a number of events uh, that we want you to plan to be a part of. Just uh, We try not to be overburdensome during this holiday season. We know there's a lot of people traveling and uh, some that are hosting and all sorts of parties and different things going on. And so uh, not to be overburdensome, but within our services, we've done a number of things this year. And uh, next Sunday morning at nine o'clock, if you come a little early for the service, there'll be a breakfast time, a time to uh, fellowship together. It'll be back in um, uh, the chapel room, just a, a light breakfast, but come a little bit early for that Christmas fellowship. And then next Sunday evening, a number of people from our church have prepared uh, music, um, songs for Christmas season, and so all the, the kids' clubs, everyone will be in here in the auditorium next Sunday evening, that's at 5 o'clock, and uh, bring a friend with you and enjoy uh, that time together. And then our candlelight service, one of the things we look forward to each year, and uh, carols and some different readings, Christmas readings, and some uh, scripture reading as well, and we'll celebrate by candlelight. And also that night, something a little different that we're doing this year, doing a cookie exchange, and we're asking each of our families that want to participate in that to bring a couple dozen of your famous cookies that you make at home or your favorite cookies that you buy at the store. It can be either one. And uh, bring those that evening, and we'll organize them there in the back in the chapel. And then uh, when you leave, we'll have little bags, and you can kind of go through and pick uh, what your favorite is. And if it's truly your favorite, you can just pick your own back up and take them with you at the end if that's uh, what you like to do. But mix and match. And you'll have a little bit of time after the service that evening to, again, fellowship, be with each other, and celebrate Christmas together. That way, bring uh, some family if they're in town by then or uh, neighbors, friends with you that evening, and we'll celebrate uh, together. And then Christmas Day, just a couple weeks away. Christmas Day is a Sunday morning this year, and uh, we'll celebrate that together at the normal time, 10 o'clock in here Sunday morning, but all of our kids' classes and every, everyone will be uh, together that morning, with kids sitting with their parents and families. It'll be structured a little differently that morning as far as the service. We'll sing carols together and uh, read the Christmas scripture together, the, the story, the account of Christ's birth, and then we're also going to, uh, as part of the sermon that morning, uh, celebrate communion together, uh, those that are here for that Christmas morning as we look to the promise of Jesus' second coming. And uh, we'll do all those things together that Christmas day. And so 
a number of things coming up the next couple weeks, and I hope that you'll plan to be a part of each of them. Not really too much schedule change other than the candlelight service will be uh, 30 minutes earlier than our normal midweek service to give us a little bit of extra time there at the end. And so hopefully you'll plan to be a part of each of those. If you would, notice on the back of your bulletin this morning some families that we've uh, mentioned that we want to be in prayer for this week. And in addition to that, if you write down Earl and Gail Sharon, Earl's uh, has been in the hospital <clears throat> for a little while, last couple weeks, and uh, they're transferring him back to autumn care. You know, he's had trouble with his with dementia, and then as well, he's had some heart issues. And so they're transferring him back. Gail's with him uh, this morning, and uh, it's been a long journey for both of them. And so if you would, uh, keep them in your prayers this week as well. And you see two families there that uh, we love and uh, cherish, and you see there the family of Grace Dowdy, who... Uh, passed away early uh, this week. Brother Henry's with us this morning. We're thankful for that. Uh, the services this week that you need to be aware of, there's a visitation at Nelson Funeral Home tomorrow evening from 4 to 8 o'clock. Uh, and so if you would uh, take note of that. And then uh, the service will be here at the church. And that's Tuesday, uh, this Tuesday, December 13th at 1130 in the morning. Uh, the graveside service will follow at Washington Memorial Park. And then after that, we're hosting a reception here uh, at the church, at the gymnasium uh, for family and friends. And Brother Henry specifically has asked that anybody that would attend the service, and he wants anyone to feel like they're welcome to come to that. And so if you can be there and be a part of that uh, as we celebrate the work that God did in Grace's life and the hope that she had. And we'll celebrate those things together and also express our condolences and, and, our, um, and our hope and our love for the Dowdy family, uh, if you would, this week. And then the family there at the bottom of John Dorsey Sr. passed away uh, Friday uh, afternoon, Friday evening. This is John Dorsey and Melissa Tigner's dad, and we've been praying for him for a number of, uh, a number of months. And in one way, the Lord answered those prayers this week in that he restored and uh, made whole uh, both of these people, both of these his children, and we're thankful for that. Uh, services are Wednesday, December 21st, and that's at their home church, Victory Baptist Church in Charlotte Hall, Maryland. And there's a visitation of service both on, on that day. And so if you get a chance to greet these families today and, and love on them, express your love toward them, and then there's a number of ways that we want to try to help them in the coming days as well. And so we're, we're praying for each of them. If you would, look at Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. Isaiah chapter 40. A little different than Matthew. We're going to take a break from our Matthew study. We're at a pretty good um, breaking point just to take a breath. We've been in Matthew uh, 1 through 13 now for, I haven't kept track, but I know it's been uh, at least five months or so that we've been in Matthew, I figured it'd take us about a year to walk our way through the book, and I think we're still on track for that. But we'll take a little bit of a break this morning as we celebrate Christmas. I had thought about just sort of moving through, and then kind of with everything that's happened in, in these families' lives, the lives of others in our church, and things that different ones are going through, we're going to take some time over the next couple of weeks and look at uh, some words. You see there, sort of the way your bulletin titles it, Words for the Waiting, Words for Those of Us that are waiting for Christ to return and make all things new and right. And what is the message of the Christmas season? And particularly, we're going to be looking at some Old Testament passages that uh, point toward 
the coming, the first coming of the Messiah, but as with most prophecy in Scripture, they also overlay. Uh, usually, Old Testament prophecy will hold some uh, truth toward Israel, and it will also hold uh, a coming prophecy for the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But then overall, there's usually an overarching theme that talks about his final coming, in which he makes all things new and all things right. And we have that this morning in Isaiah 40. So if you would, we're going to read the first 11 verses today, and then we'll, we'll pray, hear a song, and then speak about the Lord's word this morning. Notice in verse number one, good words, it says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. This is a message from the Lord. He sends a message of comfort. Verse 2, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished and that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. Because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it, surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up unto the mountain, high mountains. O Jerusalem, that bringeth, bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand. And his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Lord, we ask you this morning to work in our hearts. We ask that you give us what we do not naturally have, uh, comfort and steadfastness, surety in our lives. Uh, we naturally are found uneasy as we look around and as we experience life and uh, the frailty and uh, the humanity of our bodies, our souls, our spirits even, often leave us unstable. And so we ask this morning, that you would ground us, that you would stabilize us, as the verse says, that you would carry us in your arm and hold us close today, that you would care for us and that you would lead us gently as you know our weakness. Obviously, you have told us even this morning in your word that we are frail and even as the dust of the ground, the flower and the grass of the earth, that we wither. And so this morning, we ask that you would send the the reign of your Holy Spirit upon our lives, that you would restore us. But more than that, that you would point us to what does last forever and what is faithful. And that is your word and your person, your spirit, your truth and your promises. And so we 
We will cherish the moment as you do, and we will give you glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning, and um, as we do, sometimes we need a moment of levity, and I had that this morning as I was preparing kind of my mind and my last thoughts. I had kind of, I have a final print of my sermon that I kind of run, my last notes on Sunday morning. It might change a couple times throughout the week, and so kind of have a last print of my notes, and I remember when I printed it, it said that there was three pages of notes, two pages, front and back, and um, I just didn't think about it. I picked them up from the printer and headed in here. I thought, man, this is, I have a lot more notes than I thought I had, and as I was reviewing, and then I got to uh, my third page of notes, and it says, Introduction a esta serie de estudios, and <laughs> Guillermo and I same, share the same printer at times, and um, I also have his three pages of sermon notes in Spanish this morning. Uh, he's not in Isaiah. He looks like he's in Titus and 1 John. So we will, um, I'll not do that to you this morning. I will just speak in English and just from Isaiah 40 uh, today. If you would look there in Isaiah 40, as I mentioned a moment ago, taking a break from our study in Matthew. We'll come back to that at the new year. But over the next few weeks, I want us to kind of get a sense what it is that God wants us to feel and have in our hearts and our lives while we wait for Him. Uh, because we are. And, and, and we emphasize it at this time of year, maybe not enough throughout the rest of the year. Uh, we look back at the Old Testament sometimes and can fairly easily point a finger at Israel and say, how quickly did they forget their God? God made all these promises. He made promises to Adam and Eve and Mankind forgets them. He made promises to Abraham, and even very quickly, Abraham's children and descendants forget them and stray from the Lord. He makes promises to Jacob and to Isaac and even to Joseph, and yet in Egypt, the people of the Lord forgot them. They felt that God had forgotten them while they were waiting on him. And then they're brought out of Egypt, and within literally days, they forget what God has done for them and the promise that he set before them, and they murmur and complain. They end up in the wilderness for year after year after year, and then finally God in his mercy sends the next generation into the promised land, and he asks them to obey him, and they won't do it. They refuse. They take on, rather than driving out idolatry, they take on idolatry in their own lives. They demand a human king wanting to be just like everyone else around them, and they forget the greatness of their God. And then God gives them a king, and then mercifully a second line of kings through David, who was a good king for Israel, but even David personally at times, and then all of his descendants, one after the next, continually forgets God and ignores and turns away from him. And it's easy for us to point the finger and say, well, God had promised them. He promised Adam and Eve that there was a seed of the woman that would come that would crush 
the serpent's head, that sin would be destroyed and defeated. He had promised Abraham that he would give him descendant after descendant like the sand of the ocean side and the stars of the sky that he would add to it, that God would call all these millions and billions of people throughout time to himself. And he had made that promise, but then they forgot. He promised that he would even specifically that he would send a king to rule and reign and make the world right again. And then he even gave specifically, it will be from David. He, 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 it's not just an ambiguous promise anymore. It's a specific promise that God gives his people. But they over and over and over forget because often waiting is difficult, is it not? And just ask our kids in the next few weeks, uh, Lex and Boss and I were, or, or Lex and yeah, Boss and I were out a little bit, and we were picking up a couple things. I was kind of letting them get a gift for their sister, and uh, we were we were picking out some stuff. And he, Lex, happened to see something that his sister was also going to be getting for him, and I didn't realize that he had seen it. And he looked at it, and as we were leaving, he said, "I don't want." And he, he mentioned what it was. He says, "I don't want that to be for Christmas. I want that to be for right now." And <laughs> I didn't realize that he had seen it all in the process. He said, I said, what are you talking about? And then I was trying to kind of hope to spin the conversation in a different direction. And then he mentioned very specifically exactly what it was. And he said, the one that's in that bag, in this place, in the car, I want that to be for right now. <laughs> and then, you know, he, his spirit about it. And, and we get the same way. We want God's promises to be for right now. I mean, the promise of eternal splendor, the promise of favorable presence, the promise of the absence of sin and temptation, the absence of the result of that sin, the conquest of evil and the crushing of the, the depressing sorrow that sin brings in our lives. We want it, and we want it now. And God wants us to desire those things. They're holy desires. But in our waiting there is a different and proper response that we should have. Unlike a, a child who gets bored with waiting and distracted and turns away for something else, God wants us to keep our eyes and our hearts forever on the promises that He's actually given us. And God gave His people a promise of a coming Jesus, and it's easy for us to point the finger and say, man, how often did they forsake God's promises for something cheaper and something irrelevant in their lives. And how often do we forsake the future promise of God and the distraction of our minds and our thoughts and our desires, we fix them on something cheaper and irrelevant in eternity. And that's the, the passage that we read this morning is spoken into a group of people that had let their minds and their hearts be distracted from the Lord for a very long time. And yet the Lord's message to them, they were receiving judgment for that. They were receiving, in a way, punishment for their rejection and for their idolatry over and over and over. And yet God's message to them in verse number 1 Look at the very first verse of Isaiah 40, comfort. Now, what would your words, if you had the attention of someone that had rejected you for day upon day, month upon month, year upon year, a, a people that for over a thousand years had continually rotated to idolatry, worshiping 
gold and wooden stuff and riches and uh, mercantile success. They, they had rejected God for all the cheap things of life for over a thousand years. Now they're starting to pay attention and they're going to listen to the prophet Isaiah. Initially they rejected him, but now when this is read and received, what's the message going to be from God that they have rejected? And isn't it wonderful? The very first word is comfort. And we want to talk about that this morning, that in our waiting for Jesus to return again, we can still have comfort. And it is not just that comfort is coming one day, it is that he gives it and pours it into our hearts and our lives even now. That's the glory of the Savior and the Spirit and the work that he is doing in our hearts is that he gives us an essence or a sense of these things even now in this moment. And you think of comfort. I want you to think for a moment, around this time of year, you're going to start to see that word a lot. I remember particularly when the COVID kind of came in, people started working from home. Um, comfort became like a buzzword among anything you could advertise. Because like you could start to claim, you know, wool and fleece PJs as a work expense, you know, because you need to be comfortable while you're at home doing your Zoom meetings or what, whatever it may have been. Comfort, we think of, it's, we, you picture a fireside, it's toasty, you've got the tree and hot cocoa, chocolate tea, you have to kind of cover all the hot beverages that anyone might like, because if you don't like one, you disdain the other, you know, it's kind of the way that some people think about it, so whatever it is that would make you comfortable, you, you're sitting there and, you know, the kids playing wonderfully, cheerfully, the grandkids there neatly organized with their toys, they fold their wrapping paper up when they're done with it and set it to the side, and it's just a comfortable Christmas morning, like that's kind of what we picture, but think about the original Christmas story, if you would, of Jesus' birth. Like the whole story is about discomfort. Let it sink in for a second, okay? You, you have, it's announced to Mary, and she's startled by an angel. She fears for her life. It says she's troubled, and she's told, you're not married yet. You haven't had a relationship with a man, but you're going to have a baby. Mary, this teenage girl, what? Then, then Joseph is kind of brought through a dream in which the angel says, your bride-to-be is going to have a child, not yours. That's an uncomfortable situation. And then you have a worldwide tax that is established, also uncomfortable, it required a long, grueling journey that he had to return to the place of Joseph's ancestry and his birth, and while late in her, seemingly late in her expecting time to be with child, she has to travel a long, grueling journey across those many miles. We kind of picture it by whatever uh, storybook or Bible you may have seen, but it was probably far more grueling and uncomfortable. They get to a crowded town, which for some of us that don't enjoy crowded places sounds like a disaster. You know, you have a city of Bethlehem that holds probably four or five hundred residents at the time. It's filled with hundreds more than that. There's no room, and so they give them a spot where the animals are, and there's a birth among animals. That doesn't sound extremely comfortable, and it's wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger where the, uh, where the animals feed. And then in the middle of the night, have you ever noticed it says that the shepherds 
were abiding in the field. You know what the word abide means? It's not like they were there for the afternoon to clean things up. It means they were living in the field. Shepherds living in the field, keeping watch in the middle of the night with their flocks, and bang, all of a sudden, the angels appear in the middle. That's a startling thing. It says that they fear, and they're singing, and it's glorious, yet it's a disturbing moment. And then you have the wise men who travel hundreds probably thousands of miles that they travel. We don't exactly know their mode of travel, though your nativity probably has them on camels. However they got there, thousands of miles, a long, grueling journey. And then there's the discomfort of having to tell the King Herod, we're here to see the real king. And then his response is to kill any child that's under two years old. Also an uncomfortable moment. Then Mary and Joseph and their new young toddler baby have to get up and relocate, not to their homeland, but to Egypt, where they've never been and they've never lived. And they live there for a time and then have to return all the way to Nazareth. It's an uncomfortable story. It's not a cozy Christmas fireside, but it's a moment of discomfort. And it's spoken into a moment of discomfort, this chapter of Isaiah 40. When you think about what's happening, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all prophesying of God's judgment. And if you would, it's probably the same page for you, Isaiah 39. Look up a few verses from where you are. Look at verse 6. It's a short chapter. Here's, here's the essence of what Isaiah has said for 39 chapters. It can kind of be summed up in verse 6. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. That's a very quick summary of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Babylon's coming. There will be nothing left. And actually, when Isaiah is prophesying, it's sort of at the end of the time that, they, that, that the northern tribes of Israel have been carried away captive by Assyria. So it's like the end of one exile and the prophecy of the beginning of another exile for the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And it's before that ever happens. And, and, and Isaiah just keeps saying, God's judgment is coming, God's judgment is coming, God's judgment is coming. There's going to be nothing left it's a moment of sorrow and heaviness for the people of Israel. And then yet, just two verses later, Isaiah 40, you have this word comfort. How is it that Isaiah is prophesying comfort? Is it that God has changed his mind? No, it's actually an interesting timeline. Isaiah is prophesying for two time periods, really, for, for two groups of people. He is prophesying for Israel right now, saying, Judgment is coming. And yet, in chapter 40, there's this pivot point in which Isaiah begins to prophesy, still applicable to the people that are reading it right then, but actually, essentially, for people at least 70 years later at the end of the Babylonian captivity. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, judgment is coming, is what God is saying. But my judgment will also end in comfort. You're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to see consequences of your sin. There's going to be struggle in your life. Nothing's going to be left. Yet, I'm telling you that beyond that, there is comfort that I will bring into your life. It's this odd prophecy. It's like, well, why didn't they get it then? God knew in His sovereignty and in His will, they were going to continue to reject Him. They were headed into judgment. And yet, God is restoring into His people or giving into His people His Spirit toward them. 
You have there in your notes, in your bulletin, a few things as you follow along. But notice, first, number one, introducing this message of comfort or, or the spirit with which God speaks to his people. He says, comfort ye, comfort ye, he says, your God. I want you to notice, before God gives his formal announcement of what's coming in a good way, he sets the tone. Israel has rejected God, but God has not rejected them. And this is a glorious message. Notice first that there's personal language in the verse. Verse number one, comfort ye, comfort ye. Notice this phrase, my people saith your God. Now imagine being the people of Israel and having Jerusalem is kind of besieged and there's three layers of this exile and this captivity. They come once and just take like the smartest and best and some of the wealthy stuff. They come again and take a little bit more and then they come again and completely destroy it. And then having lived in exile for 70 years, the people of God are going to be reading this, looking at this saying, we're not, we're not God's people anymore. God has rejected us. Our fathers followed this God that promised them a land. And in promising them this land, he gave them hardship. He gave them battle. He gave them warfare. He gave them division. And then eventually gave them exile. He's destroyed their country, their temple. Even his own dwelling place is gone. It's as if God is trying to say to us, I don't care about you anymore. And yet God's message to them in the midst of their desolation and their turmoil, his message is this. Take comfort, my people, says your God. That's the beauty of this wonderful message of comfort is that it is built in the relationship that these people have with their God. And that it has not been held on to. It's not that God's people have kept the relationship. It is that God has kept the relationship regardless of his people's failure. And I want you to sense that this morning. You know, I came across this quote this week. It says that the good news of Christmas is for those that are tired of hearing bad news everywhere else. The good news of Christmas is for those tired of hearing bad news everywhere else, even within themselves. When I'm so distraught with my own failure and the issues of my life and the turmoil and trouble that I've even brought on myself, when I haven't followed God the way that I should, his message still is that he is, I am his people. He is my God. And he speaks this message of comfort. Notice there's also tender language. Verse number two, speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her. It says speak comfortably. That word comfortably literally means to the heart. It's translated uh, 390 or so times in the uh, Old Testament, it's, it's used 400 sometimes in Scripture, 390 or more of those, it's translated as the word heart. So he's saying, speak to the heart. It's the same language in, I believe it's Genesis 37, uh, around verse 4, where it talks about uh, the young man is wooing the girl to himself, the young lady to himself. It says that he spoke kindly to her heart. He spoke kindly to her. It's that type of language. He's saying, speak to their heart. Cry unto her. It's kind of the idea or the picture of, you know, you, you've had to discipline your child and you take away the toy or you respond to them, you send them to their room, they're in time out, there may be some other sort of punishment that is laid out for them that upsets them and they're, they're, in, they're at odds, they feel like, with their parent and, and there's this 
rocking almost of the soul, and they're, they're shook a little bit, you know, to their core, and they're crying, and they're struggling, and they're off by themselves for a moment trying to get their composure. And you know what, what should happen for us as parents if we're going to try to seek to parent in the way that God designs, and, and we go into them, and we speak differently to them in that moment than we did when we were scolding them or when they were dealing with their discipline, don't we? They have to deal with the discipline and the judgment, the harsh side of the authority. And yet then, there is this moment where we, we step into their room, we kneel in front of their bed, we let them wrap their arms around our neck, and we confirm to them that the relationship that we have is, it was rough for a moment, it won't remain that way. That's how God is speaking to his people in this passage. He's saying, speak kindly, tenderly, kneel before them, wrap your arms around them, put their arms around your neck, and confirm that I still love them. He says, speak comfortably and cry unto her. But notice that this message of comfort is built on three different elements of good news, almost gospel good news. Notice what he says. Their warfare has ended, or the time of their slavery, their exile, their warfare has ended or has been accomplished and fulfilled. Their iniquity has been pardoned. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, judgment is complete. So think about that. Here's the message that God gives to his people. You're struggling. You're having hardship. Your heart is uneasy. You're not sure how God feels towards you. You're not sure how how God is going to interact with you for the rest of your life. You're not sure why God has responded in this way, or maybe there's some sense of it. All all of our turmoil and sorrow is a result of our sin nature. Not necessarily an exact sin, but our sin nature has brought these things onto us, and we're not sure how God feels about us, and yet His response is, You are my people. I am your God. I'm going to speak kindly to you. And he says, and here's why. Because the war is over between us, is, is, as he's saying. Your iniquity, it's been pardoned and forgiven. The judgment is complete and it has been paid for. It won't take us long to run to the gospel theme in this. This is spoken to Israel, yes. But it's also spoken of the coming Messiah in Jesus. And it is spoken to us today that no matter the stretch of time in your life, the hardship that has come, the feelings of infirmity and grief and sorrow, anger, discontent, anxiousness, whatever it is in your life that you've been feeling, God speaks to you this morning and He confirms, you are my people, I am your God. I speak to you lovingly. And that no matter what you sense that's going on in your life, now, now, Remember that as they're reading this later, sure, they could apply that physically. Isaiah is writing this decades before the actual physical relief ever comes. So what is it that God is saying to his people? He's saying, regardless of your circumstance, because when they read this, they're still captive. And when they read this, Jerusalem is still laid wasted. There's no temple and no walls. Israel has no splendor and no glory. And they're not going to, really, even all the way to the point of Jesus 
coming. There's gonna, Israel is going to be a shadow of what it once was. So it's not God saying, I'm going to restore everything to your physical glory and the great, wonderful circumstances. He's saying, no, even in that, there is no war between us. Your iniquity has been pardoned. Judgment is complete. And Jesus speaks to us this morning. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, regardless of the year that you have had, God speaks to you this morning words of comfort in which he says, I love you. You are still mine. And no matter what you've experienced, there is no war between us. You're no longer at enmity. There's no destruction that I'm seeking in your life. I'm not going to declare you as my enemy because I have pardoned and forgiven your sins because judgment is complete and has been paid. Now, how has it been paid? For Israel, they were sensing a physical judgment and payment, but that could not recompense completely for the wrath of God against sin. Only the coming Messiah could do that. You're going to see that in a moment in the passage. And for us, today, looking back, God speaks to us and says, there's no war between us. I love you. I have forgiven your sins because someone has paid your judgment. And it's Jesus Christ. Notice what he says as we continue on, verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. We know that this is speaking in a way. It's a shadow of John the Baptist. It's a foretelling of John the Baptist, but also simply the message to God's people. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Notice, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough places plain. Notice this verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. He gives this glorious message. He says, there's a message of comfort. I love you. No war between us. I'm going to restore you. Pardon your iniquity. Judgment is complete. Now, how should we respond to that? Notice what he says. Interesting phrasing. He says, prepare ye the way of the Lord. We know that John the Baptist sort of came foretelling. He prepared the way of the Lord by message. But again, remember, this is speaking in layers. Not just to Israel immediate and not just to Israel in Messianic day of Jesus' day, but also to us now even waiting for the coming of the Lord. Notice he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Now, this is not a prophetic language saying that literally one day every physical hill is going to be flattened and every depression and valley is going to be lifted and the world's going to be flat all the way across and that there's going to be nothing but straight roads. He's giving the idea or the picture here of clarity to be able to see. And he's saying, let your heart be ready to see your God. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a path that God can encounter or come into your heart. He says, mountains. Now think about where Jerusalem was. Their minds would have been thinking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem built in very hilly country, and you could travel just a few miles away from Jerusalem and be in the midst of some very rocky, hilly, mountainous terrain. If you're going to travel from Bethlehem to Jerusalem or uh, up, or if you're going to travel down from Galilee and Nazareth down to Jerusalem, no matter how you got there, you're going to end up coming uphill. It's going to kind of be a, a difficult journey, and you're not going to see it until you're almost there. 
You, you don't see it miles and miles away. You've got to kind of work your way around the bend of the mountains and through the valleys. And this verse is saying, remove all the distractions and the obstructions from your life. Prepare to see the Lord. And then he gives this phrase in verse 5. And if you do, and as you do, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And he's speaking, yes, of the coming of Christ. You hear of this verse. Whenever I read this verse, I can't help but hear Handel's Messiah. It's one of the thematic biggest pieces of the Messiah. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And you kind of picture Jesus being revealed, yes, to now the Gentiles and all people. But it's also speaking of a further coming day. Not the ones that the Jews were waiting for, for the Messiah to come, but the day that we are waiting for, for the Messiah to reappear. And notice the way it says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Look at this phrase, all flesh, all humans, all types of people will see it together. Notice that the comfort of the Lord is built in encountering and seeing His presence. There is comfort for you today in a relationship with God. You can only have comfort, not in your circumstance, not in the mountains, the valleys, and not, not in the events of life, but in the relationship when you see God and Jesus Christ for who He really is. That's where comfort is found in December. That's where comfort is found still in the turmoil and the problems of life. That's where you'll find comfort now is when you see and sense the presence of God in a relationship in your life. It's the only place you'll find real comfort. Whether you've gotten a raise and a new house and perfect health this year, or you have struggled and had loss and had just questions all year, it doesn't matter. Your comfort for either person is found in relationship with God. But it's also pointing to, let's not lose this. Let's not just think about, well, how do we get take care of comfort now in this modern time? It's speaking of eternal comfort that is found in physically seeing the glory of God. And what he is saying is that there's coming a day in which every person is going to see with their eyes the glory of God himself. And in that moment, there's comfort. There's comfort that vanquishes every moment of discomfort you've ever had. Every evil intention and desire that you've had or others have had toward you. Every moment of sickness, every moment of loss, every moment of grief melts in the presence of God. And he says, this is what you wait for. This is what you long for. Notice he says, the king is coming to, re to restore and reveal. Notice the word comes to stand forever. Verse 6, the voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? How would you like this? This sounds so encouraging. All flesh, human beings, they're like grass. And all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. It's like, okay, we get the point. You feel like you said that about five times the same way in just a little nuance. We're fading. But notice it's not just speaking about physically we fade, though that is true, and though Peter sort of 
alludes to this same scripture saying, yes, our lives, and, and James says our lives are as a vapor, and Peter says our, our flesh, our lives, they wither away. We're not able to sustain ourselves. But notice what it says in verse 6. All flesh is as the grass. Notice this word. And all the goodliness thereof. The word goodliness there is the word has said. It is typically translated throughout the Old Testament as faithfulness or loyalty. He's saying all flesh is as the grass. The goodliness, the faithfulness of people fades. What is the message that he's saying here? You, Israel, have faded. Your faithfulness is not reliable. But God's word stays forever. He's picturing back. He's not just picturing a physical death, though that can be pictured here. He's looking at Israel and saying, Abraham promised to follow. Even he struggled in his children. Isaac, Jacob promised to follow, and their sons turned away from the Lord. The people of Israel promised to follow, and then they murmured and complained. The people of Israel promised to drive out idolatry, but their faithfulness to God went away. The people were restored under David and the good kings to follow God, but they always faded away. And God says, I have watched you over and over and over fade away. He's just telling it frankly like it is. Your life toward me is unreliable. Your faithfulness does not remain Mine always does. That's what he says at the end of verse 5. Or, excuse me, the end of verse 8. Because the word of the Lord shall stand forever. God doesn't fail. God is faithful. God is dependable. God keeps his word. God does not perish. And though we fail, our joy is not extinguished because God's promise is secure. Our hope cannot rest on our own actions but on the certainty of God's word. Some of us made mistakes in the last days or this year. As you kind of come to the end of the year, you take account for yourself. There's really no difference between the month of December and any other month other than that. At December 31st, you're going to be taxed for everything in that 12 months. Other than that, there's not a whole lot different in the month of December than all the other months as far as the beginning and ending of the year. But it's a good time to go back and assess and look at your own life. How many times could the Lord look at our lives this year and say, your faithfulness was not reliable. And yet, his message is this, but mine still is. I mean, just rejoice in the Lord for a moment in this. Your faithfulness is not enough. Mine always is. You felt weak. You questioned. You doubted. You, you did all of those things, just like John the Baptist we read a few weeks ago, that doubted sort of the, the truth of the Messiah as Jesus. You have doubted, you've struggled, you've kind of been stuck in the sludge and the mud, you haven't followed like you promised you were going to follow, but I'm still here. You're still my people, I'm still your God. There's no war between us. I love you, I've forgiven your iniquity because someone has paid your debt, and now clear the way out for relationship with me because I word lasts forever. But then I want you to notice the final thing, verses 9 through 11. The shepherd comes to gather and gently lead his people. Notice, this is a comforting message, is it not? He introduces saying, this is going to be comfort 
You're going to find comfort in this, in me. Because I'm a king that's coming to restore, make straight the highways, and I'll restore and reveal myself to you. It's my word. It lasts forever. All my promises are true. But here's how I come. And I think it's the most, in this moment in my life, I think it's the most beautiful part of the passage. Verse 9, O Zion that bringeth good tidings, get thee up to the high mountains. O Jerusalem that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up. Be not afraid, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Well, side note for a moment, this is the essence of comfort is that people see God for who he is. And I hope that you're doing that this morning. I hope that in this Christmas season, it's not simply about the moment of your circumstance, but it's about your relationship with God and seeing Him and waiting for the one day with Him. But notice, behold, your God will come with strong hand. His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. Saying He brings this reward, which was the glory of the praise of his people, his work before him, the redemption that he has brought for people. So if you're God and you're coming with a strong hand, you can rule over all things and you show your reward, which is look at all these people and you show your work, which is look at, look at how I have redeemed all these people. Like, you know, you finish a big project at work or, you know, husbands, you, you finally finish that five-minute thing your wife has asked you to do for months and we finish it, and we look at them like, you are so lucky to have me as a husband. I replaced the battery in that light or whatever it was in the ceiling that for months has nagged you, and now I have finished it. I will retreat to my castle recliner for the next five months until I'm required to serve again. You know, we act like I've accomplished this. How awesome am I? God carries with him redeemed souls of Billions of people. Glory to him, yes. But then notice how he comes. Verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. <laughs> he shall gather the lambs with his arm. Carry them in his bosom. And I want you, this phrase, if you don't get anything else this morning, notice this. And shall gently lead those that are with young. If you're going to use this allusion to, to being... A shepherd. I mean, think about all the great characters in Scripture that were, or were pictures of Christ that were shepherds. You have all, all sorts of Abraham's a shepherd that God calls to follow him and remain faithful. Joseph is a shepherd that is exiled and ridiculed and mistreated. And David's a shepherd that no one expected that became the king. I mean, there's all sorts of shepherds throughout the Old Testament. And God continually relates himself to being a shepherd and we as a sheep. Sheep, they're not clean, they're not nice, they're not cute. Like they're decorated for the fair with the ribbon, but they're like 10 minutes later, they're rolling in the same soot that they went to the bathroom in. Like they're nasty animals. They're not smart, they're ignorant, and they, they don't naturally make you want to like, if, I mean, big sheep, grown sheep, flocks of them. They don't naturally make you say, I want to be really merciful and go hang out with them. But he says, he is our shepherd, and notice how he knows how to lead. He knows how to lead with a strong arm. He has a rod and staff to direct and guide when he needs to. But notice the last phrase, if you hear nothing else this morning. He says, he knows how to gently lead those that are with young. What does that mean? 
the shepherd would be guiding the sheep. And there's a certain time of year that the female sheep, they're expecting a little lamb. And as they expect the lamb, just like any other, most other beings, as they're expecting a child, you know, ladies that don't move around quite like you did before, nine months before. There's some things that have to be done gingerly, gently. And he's saying, God knows when to lead with gentleness. And he doesn't abuse and harm those that are vulnerable in life. It might feel like it at times. Because you think, oh, God is sovereign in the circumstance that he's brought into my life. This feels harsh. But this tells us that the character and nature of God is that those that he loves and cherishes that are his people that are vulnerable and hurting, he gently guides them with exactly what they need. If you hear nothing else this morning, know that God knows exactly how to handle your life. He knows where you will break. He knows where you will bend. He knows what you need. He knows where you're struggling. He knows where you're hurting. He knows where you are bruised. And his intentions for you are still good. Notice he says, comfort, comfort. Often in scripture, I see words twice when they're meant to be affirmed or sort of confirmed in their lives. The writers, they didn't have you know, bold print font. They didn't put things in like all caps like you do when you're texting. They didn't put an emoji with it and didn't put it in bold and underline and highlight. If they wanted to emphasize something, they'd say it twice. And it's interesting that as you get to this point in Isaiah where he has said, your circumstances are rough, your life is difficult, but just know that God's heart towards you is comfort. In this moment, by a relationship with him, if you have nothing else when you lay down tonight, your, your family is distraught, your, your life is shambles, you're questioning finance, you are struggling with health, the grief and loss weighs heavy. When you pillow your head tonight, God's word to you is comfort. And he will gently lead those that are vulnerable among you. And I think it's a good word for this morning. And as we think of Christmas time and the Christmas season, this is what it means that Jesus came. Is that he brought our redemption. He suffered for us so that we can trust him in the past and have faith for him in the future. That one day the glory of God will be revealed All flesh will see it because God has said it. It is true. This is the Christian message of Christmas. And may it confirm and bolden our hearts today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is good. And it is right. It is always true. And we look to scripture in which a group of people... We're struggling, we're hurting, the physical circumstances were bad enough, but these people, I think of the people 70 years after they were taken into exile, people that are old near the end of their lives, that were not even born when this judgment had come, and I know that their heart 
their question would have been, is God really who he has said in his word that he is? Does God really think of us the way that he says that he does? Lord, may you encourage us today that though the world around us is in turmoil, though our own lives often have struggle, though grief creeps in, though loss, though weight of life pulls us where no one else can see. You speak in a whisper and then a shout, comfort, comfort. May we chase after a relationship with you this morning. May we move obstructions, the hills, the valleys, make plain and straight the path. May we follow you. Remove all things in our lives that distract from you. As we enter this Christmas season, may our lives reflect the glory of the promise that Jesus is coming again. May we wait for it. May we long for it. There's a lot of application. There's a lot of ways that our lives should change. But our physical actions won't change until our heart and our spirit are made right with you. So may we see you for what you really are this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand if you would, and let's sing this together, beholding that wondrous mystery that Christ was slain for us. Let's sing it together here at this altar, there at your seat. The Lord is working in your heart, even just speaking to you comfort. May you respond to him. Tell him thank you. Tell him you don't understand, but you want to follow. Let's sing this together. Allow God's Spirit to work in us.